Hello and welcome to the What Happened podcast, where uh, my co-host, Owen, and myself, Ryan, um, detail some of the wackier events in geopolitical history. How are you doing today, Owen? Doing well, Ryan. I'm uh, very excited to start this off <laughs> with some great stories. Yeah, I got a weird story for you. Um, Lead the way. So you want me to just dive right into it? Okay. I mean, dive right in, man. So, Owen... How much do you know about the um, Canadian maple syrup heist? I mean, not a whole lot, I'll be honest. Don't even know where this would possibly take place, but, uh, I mean, besides the obvious Canada. Probably but, yeah, go Canada, right if I had to guess, yeah. I just meant, like, province or whatever they call it there. Okay. But... <laughs> so, <clears throat> well, in the year um, 2001, um, which is sort of when this all well actually i don't know why i added 2001 but anyways in 2001 the federation of quebec maple syrup producers uh, that's uh, that's gonna be pronounced quebec yeah i'm gonna keep saying quebec for the entire episode i hope you're okay all right that. that's fair. at least you're honest so 2001 the federation of quebec maple syrup producers holds 77 percent of the world's maple syrup right that's, jesus a lot of maple syrup. That is a ton of maple syrup. So this sticky gold mine is out of reach for most, but for a few enterprising individuals, it's a treasure trove waiting to be seized. That sounds like you plagiarized that straight from Wikipedia. Nah, dude, that's off the brain. That's me right there. That's all, <laughs> it's all my original content. Um, but first we need some context, right? So... In 1966, a large group of maple syrup producers joined together to collectively market and distribute maple syrup made in Quebec. This group came to be known as the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, or FQMSP for short. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> so <clears throat> the Federation gained uh, a reputation for their tough business practices on smaller maple syrup producers. Many said that their prices for marketing and distribution were too uh, high for small local farmers to afford. But it was virtually impossible to sell your syrup nationwide and worldwide without the FQMSP. So the way it works is maple syrup would be produced by farms, then stored in warehouses across Quebec. Uh, the collective syrup holdings of the Federation was called the Strategic Reserve, which sounds a lot like intenser than what it really is. It's just a bunch of maple syrup in a bunch of buildings. Is, is it just Canada's version of, like, Fort Knox? Pretty much, but it's okay. like if Fort Knox was spread across a ton of different states and and also, full of maple syrup yeah just very sticky full of fruit flowers. <laughs> so the strategic reserve was not impenetrable it had weaknesses for instance the warehouses were often in remote locations and would be abandoned at night plus the maple syrup was stored in unmarked white barrels and only inspected once per year in 2010 a plan was devised to steal and resell the syrup for profit but for a good job, there needs to be an elite crew. A crew needs a leader, a mastermind, to plan, finance, and execute. This man is Richard Valerez. I think that's correct. <laughs> that also rolls off the tongue. I'm sorry if you're French or French-Canadian or from a francophone. Uh, but we, <laughs> when you steal something valuable, you can't immediately sell it back. 
That's where Richard's father, Raymond Valerais, comes in. Raymond would store the syrup until the heat died down and it could be sold. But where do you sell it, Owen? Enter Etienne Saint-Pierre. As a syrup wholesaler from New Brunswick, Saint-Pierre would act as a fence for the group. He had no qualms about buying the stolen goods. Richard knew where to get the syrup and where to sell it. But how would you get in? Enter Avic Karen. This was the man for that. Karen's wife owned one of the warehouses in the strategic reserve. Uh, with a little sweet talk and maybe a stolen key card, Karen could get access to the goods. Next would be the issue of transport. You can't just walk away with a 55-gallon drum of maple syrup. Sebastian Zertas took up this end. Zertas was a truck driver who would use his rig to move the goods around. That's all sound good. We got a real Ocean's Eleven ensemble going on. Here. <laughs> I love it, but it's Canada's what, like six? It's Canada's four. Well, they're actually or, what's what's the guy's name? Uh, the main the guy. leader. Yeah, Richard Valliers. So it's so it's Valliers four. <laughs> well, there's actually we'll, like, we'll call it that from now on. We'll get into it oh, later, there more but than... there are actually like twenty people involved in this. Jesus, are these just the main like these five are, guys? I keep saying uh, different numbers. Yeah, these are the main, like, four or five people. Okay, all right. So the plan was simple, Owen. Under the cover of Nightfall, Karen uh, would use his wife's credentials to gain access to the reserve. With the doors open, Richard and Zertas would load the syrup barrels into a truck and drive them to Raymond's house. There, the barrels would be drained of their syrup, refilled with water, and driven back to the warehouse. When the, where, uh, when the barrels were returned, another batch would be taken, and the process would repeat. So, you know, pretty your old snatch and grab, you know? Just, I mean, it seems like a pretty sound uh, sound deal so far. Um, it was a very good deal. Like, it worked for a really long time. Um, but as the operation ramped up, the crew realized they were wasting time and resources by shipping the barrels back and forth between the warehouses. Eventually, they pivoted to draining the barrels at the reserve without refilling them, which we'll get into later, but... That would be their downfall. Okay, so they would drain the maple syrup there, and instead of filling them with water, they would just them? Yeah, they would just leave them there. <clears throat> okay. Seems like a big flaw in the plan, I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh, once the heat cooled off, the syrup, get it? Because syrup gets hot. They just keep talking. <laughs> uh, Zertas would meet up in New Brunswick with Saint-Pierre. Saint-Pierre then sold off the syrup in small batches to local buyers or in larger batches to uh, buyers in Vermont and, like, Maine and Ooh. stuff like that. Okay. The plan was working flawlessly. The crew kept this up from 2011 to 2012, and they were making serious cash. But they forgot one thing, Owen. The yearly syrup inspection. Okay, so this only lasted for about a year, this whole thing? It only lasted for a year, but they stole and... a good amount of maple syrup. Gotcha, okay, alright. So, in the fall of 2012, Inspector Michael Gavreau arrived at the warehouse to inspect the stores of syrup. Uh, what he found would shock him. He discovered that some of the barrels were empty, so he contacted the authorities, and the police investigation found that nearly 3,000 tons of maple syrup were missing. Oh my god. <laughs> so, uh, there's some testimony from Garveau. And he says that he uh, was trying to... He didn't actually look inside the barrels. Um, he would just count the number of barrels. And he was climbing up on a stack of barrels to 
Uh, oh, please tell me he tumbled. He almost tumbled and almost died because of, I mean, Jesus. even a 55-gallon, like an empty 55-gallon drum is still very heavy. Um, but they were empty, so they couldn't support his weight. So nope. if they had just refilled them with water, he would not have noticed they were empty. Well, all right, wait, question for you. So do people just check up on these every year and they still just stay in the warehouse? Or would they have eventually, like, noticed that they're just not filled with maple syrup when they go to empty them, like, five years later? Um, from what I could gather, this particular warehouse was uh, fairly remote and uh, didn't see a lot of business. Okay. So they weren't necessarily shipping this syrup out fairly often. Okay, all right. So it probably would have been a lot longer filled them up that they could have gone with this. Yeah, if they had been okay. filling them up, they could have they could have gone for a while. So a normal syrup barrel weighs 600 pounds. Jeez. Uh, so they stole 3,000 pounds. So that means that over the course of one year, they had stolen 10,000 barrels of syrup. Thank you. I was trying to do the math, but... <laughs> uh, the investigation led to the arrest of the entire crew, along with 20 other individuals involved in the heist. Okay, jeez. Years after his arrest, Raymond Valerais still claimed that he did nothing wrong due to his disdain for the Federation's treatment of small syrup producers. An interview with uh, Ray uh, Raymond says, Stealing from thieves is not stealing, but no matter how you justified their actions, the Canadian government saw things differently. Many of the crew escaped with minor charges, but not all of them. Sebastian Jertas, the truck driver, served eight months in prison. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, you know, it's just some trailer park boys time, you know. They get out pretty quick. <laughs> Avic Karen, the inside man, spent five years in prison and was fined one point two million Canadian dollars. Oof. And the mastermind of it all, Raymond Valerais, was sentenced to eight years in prison and fined <laughs> nine point four million dollars. Uh Canadian dollars? Canadian dollars. My point. How much is that in uh, American dollars? That I would have to look up for you. I, I doubt it's that big of a difference, but my God, eight years in prison, you said? Eight no, years. nine? Eight years. Jeez, man. So, although the syrup thieves were caught, the majority of the syrup was sold and made it to the legal market, making it impossible to track. All in all, the crew stole and resold 18.7 million Canadian dollars. Now, if you adjust that for inflation and convert it to U.S. dollars, that's $20,935,493.46. Okay, wait. So they were, they were fined, but their fines weren't nearly what they made, right? So, like, did they lose this money to the Canadian government? Um, I would imagine they were selling it for cash, and the Canadian government seized the, the cash. The cash. Okay, that would make sense. Because I was going to say these guys got off pretty well. Then I mean, eight years is fun, but yeah, but I mean, it's fun for twenty million dollars. Twenty million dollars, you know. It's also fun in Canada, I'm sure. Yeah, Canadian prison can't be that bad. <laughs> yeah, it can't be that bad. So this may not be the most profitable heist in Canadian history. I literally don't know. I didn't look it up. Uh, <laughs> Wait, maple syrup wise or just heist wise? Just heist wise. I have no. Okay. I haven't looked at the most. I doubt they have a lot of heists yeah. in Canada. Uh, they may not have gotten away with it, but I'll be damned if this this isn't the most heartfelt crime ever committed. Not to mention the most Canadian crime ever committed. One man <laughs> with a dream and a love for that sweet, sticky brown gold, Canadian maple goddamn syrup. <laughs> I love it. And that is the story. Um, so wait, so this happened in what, 2012, you said? Between 2011 and 2012. 
So he is out of prison, presumably, right? Yeah, he's walking the streets. So keep Good an eye him, on your man. Aunt Jemima. <laughs> that is so stupid. <laughs> All right, I love it. Is that everything? That is the story of the full story, well, the abridged story of the great Canadian maple syrup heist of 2011. I love it. Strong work. All right, Ryan. Have you... Pepsi briefly became the sixth largest military power in the world? Um, I'm not. This one I'm excited for. Uh, so just wait, because my storytelling is god-awful. So we're going to see how well I actually explain this. But, all right, so this happened uh, in a span from, like, 1959 to about, like, I don't know, the late 90s, or excuse me, early 90s, give or take. Um... But anyway, so this happened during the Cold War, uh, and the Cold War started in 1947, and uh, some kind of argument ended, but uh, they think they it spanned into about 1991, which was like the true collapse of the Soviet Union. When uh, anyways, the, as... When did the Berlin Wall fall? Was that 91? Uh, I assume that was 91, but I know that the Soviet Union fell in which I think was like the demise of <laughs> of uh, this whole Pepsi plan, shall I say. <laughs> okay. um, but so anyways, Cold War, 1947-1991. Cold War was uh, a span of geopolitical tension between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, um, basically Eastern powers versus Western power, uh, you know, with their small allies and everything you know, like that. Communist versus uh, democracy. Capital, capitalist. Yeah. I think I think technically capitalist versus communist, but I'm not actually sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Cold War, there's no actual fighting between this time. It was just a period of like, insane nuclear tension, and I'm sure just a ton of espionage that we still don't truly really know about. Well, proxy wars, uh, too, you know? Vietnam and proxy. Uh, yeah, oh, that's that's true. Also, what is that? The Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Yeah, I think Russia was definitely in that. I don't know. You definitely don't not alive. Um. All right. So, anyways, so the year is 1959. So we're about 12 years into the Cold War. Uh, the U.S. and Soviet Union are just like not at all friends. They're just you know they're both building up the nuclear arsenal, probably committing a ton of like war crimes and espionage against each other. Anyways, the Soviet leader at the time is Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, and the U.S. president is Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, and the vice president, I believe, was Richard Nixon. Yeah, Richard Nixon, which is just fantastic. I love that. Uh, so in 1959, there was a New York exhibition, and it was basically just like a bunch of trade goods and just a bunch of like big or small companies could come all around the U.S. and show off their products to, you know, obviously people who wanted to buy these products. Believe it or not, Nikita Khrushchev made the trip from Moscow to New York to check out these products. Couldn't tell you why, middle of the Cold War, don't know how he got in. Yeah, I wouldn't really have um, expected him to come, like, I mean, especially New York City, that's like the, I mean, you can, it's like the unofficial capital of the U.S., you know? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so Khrushchev went there, uh, and <laughs> during this exhibition, he tried Pepsi-Cola, and this is the first time anyone apparently in the Soviet Union has tried a true soft drink. I'm sure they had some of their own there, but, you know, nothing Nothing meets American soft drinks. You know what I mean? Pepsi Cola, whatever you want to call it, a soft drink. I'm got Khrushchev's heart. Pepper man myself, but I get the. Opinion. I also prefer Dr Pepper. I mean, Pepsi in my mind is a no go, but Khrushchev, it was the one and only he tried. So, he... um, so after 1959, Khrushchev just absolutely loved Pepsi. Was trying to find ways to get Pepsi into the Soviet Union. With all of America's embargoes and just their taxes and everything were crazy, it was almost impossible for Khrushchev to get Pepsi uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Um, but Pepsi wanting to expand their empire and compete with the you know, 
the America's favorite Coca-Cola. They wanted to do whatever they possibly could to expand, and they knew that their this was, you know, their answer was the Soviet Union. So in 1972, Pepsi was able to strike a deal with the Soviet nation. I believe it was still Khrushchev, but I'm actually not sure who the president was at this time. Um, but 1972, they struck a deal with the Soviet Union. Uh, the contract allowed Pepsi products to be sold between the Iron Curtain and disallowed all imports of Coca-Cola or any other non-Pepsi products into the Soviet Union. Uh, this didn't just include Russia. This included all the Soviet states like, uh, well, I don't know, probably like Ukraine, Belarus, you know, all those areas. All so, the stands. All the, yeah, all the stands. I was going to say Kazakhstan, but I feel like I always say it wrong. And with Borat coming out, I didn't really want to mess it up. Naturally. Um, but yeah, so Pepsi struck a deal um, that they were allowed to import their products to Russia, and Russia wasn't allowed to buy any other products. So this was absolutely lucrative for Pepsi. So um, hear me out here. Go on. Yep. They got approval from the U.S. government to do this? So they got approval from the U.S. government, but they ran into issues um, with embargo on the Soviet Union, and just like I believe that there was also an insane tax rate to ship to the Soviet Union. They weren't allowed to ship the Pepsi itself, like the soda product. They were only allowed to ship the uh, uh, the syrup, so stuff that made the product into soda. They were allowed to ship, but they weren't allowed to ship the product itself. Okay. Um, so this obviously frustrated Pepsi pretty heavily, but Pepsi came up with a solution that they would import uh, the Pepsi syrup into Russia and then the Pepsi company themselves would build multiple plants within Russia, like with all the states surrounding whatever. I couldn't get an exact number on how many they built, but that doesn't really matter. But anyways, they would ship the Pepsi syrup into Russia. Then they would use like the local economy and everything to make the Pepsi itself. So it wasn't just beneficial for, the, for Pepsi. It was also beneficial to the Russian people. Not only were they getting you know a soft drink that they really liked, but it also was boosting their economy. You know, you gotta, so it was actually you got to introduce diabetes to a nation somehow. <laughs> hey, and it worked out in Pepsi's favor. Um, so, um, where was I? So the problem that Pepsi kind of ran into with their import, this was great for them. You know, this was going to boost their. You know, they were going to make a ton of money off it. It's a whole new nation that they can sell to. But the problem was the ruble at the time, which is the Russian currency, was like worth next to absolutely nothing. So if Russia exchanged this good for the rules, they would be just absolutely siphoning money. So it wasn't worth it for them to be um, to be trading for money. Also, I think that the U.S. economy and the U.S. government is not at all going like, to let Pepsi just be like trading in you know Soviet Union with their money. I don't think that was at all going to be a thing. So that they, Pepsi and Russia, within this contract in 1972, struck a deal that they were going to do in exchange for goods so for um, what was it? So for every bottle of Pepsi syrup exported to the Soviet Union, Pepsi would get one bottle of Russian vodka in exchange. Pepsi was allowed by the U.S. government to sell the um, the Russian vodka within the uh, the U.S. economy. So Pepsi actually made a ton of money, considering that their syrup was like dirt cheap, and this Russian vodka was really sought after by the American people because with all the embargoes and stuff. Uh, it was really hard to come across Russian products, and I mean, we all know Russia and vodka just go hand in hand. Do they so rebrand pep- the the vodka at all? I the- honestly do not know because it didn't. I, I mean, I wasn't around then, but it, I know there's a pretty big hatred between the two nations. So but it, then again, so it wasn't like Pepsi brand vodka. That no, I think amazing. it was literally. I would absolutely. Yeah, I tried to look it up. I couldn't find 
Pepsi brand vodka, but I did find a ton of Pepsi cans that were in Russian, and it was just wild. Um, but yeah, so this deal from 1972 was supposed to expire in 1999, and this was a big dilemma for Russia because a lot of PR stuff was not all going their way with the Americans. Um, in 1979, Russia invaded Afghanistan, uh, and this just led to massive boycotts across the United States of Russian products. So it was actually becoming insanely hard for Pepsi to, you know, actually make profit off of selling the uh, the liquor. And uh, apparently there was just like warehouses full of vodka because the U.S. just would not buy it because they were boycotting Russia for this just what we didn't agree with of them invading Afghanistan. Makes sense. So, yeah. So... That was a 10-year span. They invaded in 1979, and the uh, contract was set to expire in 1989. So Pepsi was kind of shit out of luck for about 10 years and just losing a ton of money. But they still had this contract, so they still had to keep sending their syrup to Russia, who was just benefiting heavily off having this, um, the Pepsi. But Pepsi was losing an insane amount of money. <laughs> but <laughs> the Soviet Union, being the Soviet Union, still really really wanted the Pepsi product uh, when the contract was set to expire in 1989. So they offered Pepsi to just keep selling them vodka. But like I said, for about 10 years now, Pepsi was losing an insane amount of money. So, so Pepsi was like... So Pepsi was still receiving uh, vodka after the invasion of Afghanistan, but just couldn't correct. sell it? Okay. So the American people were boycotting products from Russia, not necessarily the government. So there was still like the strict bans on stuff coming in from Russia. But the American people themselves just didn't want anything to do with Russian-made products, a.k.a. vodka, because it was supporting the Russian government and the Russian economy, and they were using that money essentially to invade Afghanistan. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, these the vodka was just sitting in the Pepsi storage. They were selling them dirt cheap just to get rid of them, making absolutely no money off of them. So 1989 came around when the contract was expired. And Pepsi essentially said, we absolutely are not going to be accepting your vodka. We also still can't truly accept your role because it's still just not worth enough. The conversion rate is not nearly worth it. They'll still be losing a ton of money. <laughs> but so the Soviet Union was so goddamn determined to have Pepsi for some reason in their economy that they literally would do absolutely anything to keep Pepsi at the, in this, like, this contract going. So... What did the communist? So, excuse me. So, Soviet Russia came up with a unique and clever idea that would ensure the continued inclusion of Pepsi in every restaurant across the communist nation. Goddamn submarines! Uh, as the saying goes, "Desperate times calls for desperate measures," <laughs> and Pepsi was in the heart of every goddamn little communist boy and girl in the Soviet Union, and the government needed to keep this lucrative uh, trade product coming in. So. The Russian government traded 17 submarines, a cruiser, a frigate, and lastly, a destroyer to the, the American soda tycoon. Now, this was in exchange for a boatload of soda. Sounds like a real there? hunt for Red October situation. I see what you did there, but absolutely not, because this is involving soda products and not a... Green, if I remember so Sean Connery wasn't involved in this trade deal? You know, I actually don't have proof of that, so I can't yeah, confirm can't or deny it. <laughs> uh, but actually, this boatload of Pepsi that um, was going into the uh, the Soviet Union was worth an estimated $3 billion. So Pepsi, for $3 billion, got 17 submarines, a cruiser, a frigate, and a destroyer. And then Russia got $3 billion worth of Pepsi product. 
So it was in just an insanely lucrative deal. But naturally, Pepsi being a soda tycoon and not like a you know rogue nation couldn't really do anything with all this just naval power. Um, so this deal obviously was struck in 1989. Um, them having this kind of warships in their fleet actually somehow led them to become the sixth most powerful military in 1989. I guess Even just though, like none of them were staffed or anything. Not staffed. There was no army. There were no blue Pepsi camo, just like riding the <laughs> riding in the submarine. They had no army, no air force, nothing. But this amount of warships led them to be the the sixth largest military, is which wild. is just wild to me because 1989 wasn't that long ago. A soda company to just have like some warships be that high up is just insane. <laughs> um, but. Fortunately for Coca-Cola, soon after this historic deal from Pepsi, uh, Pepsi realized that they couldn't make any money off of having these warships and that they needed to get rid of them. So they ended up selling them to a Swedish recycling And essentially the, the company just scrapped and just like stripped down the parts, sold everything for metal. Um, I can't find an exact number on how much Pepsi deal, but if it was $3 billion worth of Pepsi products, you kind of hope that the 17 submarines and all of the other warships actually made decent money. Um, but I can't see how much Pepsi made off the sale. But anyways... Um, I mean, that many... Just in terms of, like, sheer raw steel, like, that amount of ships must have been worth millions of dollars. That's a lot. Um, and I do know something that the Russian submarines are absolutely massive. Like, I know that the... And, like, Russia just went for these massive underwater, like, whales... So I'm sure there's just an absolutely just shit ton of steel that was sold to the Swedish company. So um, re- real quick, I just looked it up. Um, this list may have changed because this is a current list, but uh, if they were the sixth largest military power, that puts uh, them under the United Kingdom and above France. I mean, we all know the jokes about France and their military. I mean, that means that... F- the, that Pepsi could have gone toe-to-toe with the UK. <laughs> I mean, they also could have invaded France, but we don't want to do yeah, that to France yet again. That wouldn't be that hard. Um, also, I would have loved to see like a Coca-Cola versus Pepsi war going on in the US. Uh, like just like them attacking war. them with other warships. Uh, luckily, I mean, I don't know when the Pepsi headquarters was built, but I do know it's built in Atlanta, which is pretty inland, so I don't know if that was swayed by Pepsi. The I would like to believe that they saw that Pepsi had warships, and they're like, nah. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, so uh, in 1980, their entire fleet went to a Swedish recycling company. I'm not sure how much money they got. Um, but three years after this exchange, so in 1991, ended the Soviet Union ended up falling. Um, and so, it, what, what would that make? So in 1991... Um, there was no more contract with Pepsi in the Soviet Union. Soviet Union wasn't around anymore, but they still probably had a surplus of $3 billion Pepsi products. I doubt you can go through $3 billion worth of Pepsi in th- three years, but then again, I don't know a whole lot about Pepsi. Tell it to Americans. That's a very good point, but we're more Coca-Cola, I would like to think. Yeah, that's true. But, yeah, so that is the story of how Pepsi became the sixth largest military so hear me out, in 1989. Do you think that there's still a secret trade agreement between Putin and Pepsi, and Pepsi is just slowly amassing military power 
right just have a couple of nukes just sitting there waiting for coke just to get a little more powerful yeah how many pepsi bottles do i have to give you before i can get a nuke in return <laughs> well i mean three billion dollars worth of pepsi bottles buys you 17 so i don't know what the conversion rate to submarine and nuke is but <laughs> <laughs> jeez that is fucking insane dude yeah i just would have loved to see i wish they didn't sell one of and just see a new submarine on a wall. Yeah, that should be like that'd be wild I if you like just that, had that in your it, headquarters. Yeah, right. You like tour the submarine, and it's just like Pepsi goes everywhere. Submarine, it's painted blue. <laughs> also, hear me out. Just imagine living a life where you are so heavily involved, like invested in receiving Pepsi, and all you have to give in return is. A fleet of naval warships. Hey, I mean, when your vodka won't cut it anymore, the next step is obviously warships. It goes vodka warships in terms of... Uh, and then rubles. Yeah. Rubles way after that. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants your rubles. Yeah. Right. Uh, I did mean to mention, this historic trade did put a lot of pressure, not just on Pepsi, but on the U.S. and like other world governments, because there were a lot of questions raised on if this was actually not only like legal, but like ethical on the part of Russia, just giving a, like, private company, like, warships? I would um, argue I couldn't... probably not ethical. Correct. I couldn't find anything on, like, any laws being set off this, being like, hey, you can't give people just, like, war stuff. I don't You know what I mean? You can't arm a private company. Couldn't find any laws off that, but I know that Russia took a ton of flack off this, uh, off this this deal in 1989 well maybe that led to the decline of the soviet union but if you think about it it's like illegal to own a tank unless it's demilitarized so you can't have like a working cannon on it but at the same time pepsi owned like legitimate instruments of war yeah but then again they did sell it shortly after they made the trade so i wonder if they were pressured by the u.s government to like force them to sell because they also didn't sell it to like another military they sold Scrapy. So I wonder if they were like legally obligated to get like rid of the warships, and they had to sell them to a like a, a, a scrap company. I guess I don't know. I couldn't find that anywhere, but I feel like that would kind of make sense because I feel like the U.S. government probably wasn't thrilled with Pepsi in 1980. Hey Pepsi, what are you doing down there? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but well, yeah, so that's the story. Yeah, I think um, you've heard a couple of uh, wacky stories about. Canada and Pepsi, and um, I hope you'll join us next week um, for another couple, couple another wacky history. All right, all right, redo that, redo that. <laughs> what are you talking about? You just went for a couple, uh, another, a couple, uh, a little more, a couple more. Uh... <laughs> all right, uh, next week, more stories. Period. That's it. Goodbye. Ah, uh, no, that's not fun, man. <laughs> I don't. Well, I, now it's drawn out way too long. I mean, we we can't cut this obviously because this is you know just us being us. But yeah, join us next week. Uh, we're gonna talk about some more just wacky stories on uh, what happened. What happened?